George. I'm Leonard Lopate. Despite measures to deter immigration by the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations, record numbers of families and unaccompanied minors continue to flood our southern border. In fact, children of immigrants are the fastest-growing segment of the U.S. child population. Many of their lives have been shaped by the grueling, dangerous trips they've made from Central America and Mexico to the United States, plus issues of their legal status and even state-sanctioned violence. In her new book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children, Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega, assistant professor for Chicana and Chicano Studies at UC Santa Barbara, examines how art can provide a safe and necessary space for these vulnerable populations to express their feelings and assert their humanity. Her book is published by New York University Press, and I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Vega to our show now. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You spent 10 years researching and writing this book. Was a factor in your decision to devote so much of your life to the subject the the fact that you were once an undocumented minor? Yeah, I think that did have something to do with it. Um, But in all seriousness, that reality of growing up with a family members who are undocumented, being undocumented myself for most of my life, it really left an impact. And I just saw how much it was impacting not only my family, but those around me. And so I think that was one of the reasons why I decided to dedicate this much time and energy to this project. Well, where did you conduct your research and over how many years? Yeah, so the project initially started in 2008 in Arizona during the Obama administration. I was working at a community center with children, and we were going to create a mural. And I asked the kids, what do you want a mural to be about? Um, And they said about peace. And when I asked, what does peace look like? They said, Sheriff Jorapayo shaking hands with a Mexican which was very impactful. Um, unfortunately, the mural did not come to be. The It was thought to be too controversial, but children were really impacted by not being able to paint it. So I asked them, can you write a letter or a poem or draw a picture about why this matters to you? And that's when I collected almost 100 drawings. And then that led me to do this project again in California during the Trump era. And so this book takes account over that period of time, those two political administrations, two border states, um, and work with children who come from Mexican and Central American countries. And what were the age groups you were studying? In Arizona, I worked with children from age five Hmm. up until 17. And then in California, once I realized and learned more about children, I realized that there wasn't a lot of information, academic information or studies on pre-adolescence, which are ages can range from 11 through 13. And so I decided to work with that group of children. Um, and so in California, it was it was preteens. Now, the book has uh, a fair number of drawings in it, but were they also involved in other arts like theater and music? Yeah, so I, to work with the kids in California, I created a curriculum of art that relied on theater and performance. And so I included journaling, I included drawing, but I also um, did skits and we did a, a big show, a final performance every year. And so I was able to analyze their performances, their ideas, their journal entries, their drawings, and account for multiple um, art modalities. Had any research of this sort been conducted previously? You know, that was that was a big question all throughout um, my study of this because I did find few studies that used art, but most of those studies were worth um, kind of like therapy, like art therapy. 
And I was not trying to be a therapist with children. And so while those studies were helpful in understanding how art is important for children who are under distress, I couldn't really find studies that used art um, in other fields like immigration scholarship. Um, And so I decided that this was so important for me. I wanted to include art. I wanted to include a historical account. I wanted to do a read of immigration policies over the last several hundred years um, and put all of that in conversation. And, And to be honest, I haven't seen many books that do that. What are some of the circumstances in Mexico and Central America that compel people to risk migrating to the United States, often by sending their children ahead without them? Yeah. So, you know, there are many reasons. Um, People think about these as push and pull factors, which means that there are reasons in the countries of origin that push people out. For example, violence, um, economic instability, We've now seen a lot of natural disasters. Um, And so all of these reasons create unlivable conditions that push people out. And then there are pull factors. Um, There are reasons why people are coming to the U.S. because they're pulled into um, an economic space where they can make a living, where they are going to get employed. Um, And so this creates a a relationship between people migrating and and coming to the U.S. And so, unfortunately, it is because of terrible conditions. But you call U.S. immigration policy as it's conducted on our southern border today and historically legal violence. (laughs) What current immigration practices qualify as legal violence? Yeah, you know, legal violence is an idea that basically gives us a framework to think about laws as being potentially harmful for people. And even though they are harmful, we still accept them because they're in the name of our personal protection or national security. And so some of the laws that can qualify as legal violence, for example, in 2018, We saw Trump's zero tolerance policy on the border. And Jeff Sessions, the U.S. Attorney General, described the goal of this policy uh, by saying, quote, we need to take children away. Hmm. And so away from what? From from their parents. Yeah. And so the point of, of creating so much suffering that people in countries of origin would not be Um, compelled to migrate was the point of that policy. And so cruelty and pain and suffering were the motivators to stop people from coming. And so that, I think, qualifies as legal violence. Hmm. Along with keeping children from their parents, what are some other tactics that the government's used historically to control groups of people who've been deemed a threat? These people are deemed a threat, even though in many cases they have contributed to our economy. Yeah, I mean, there are so many examples throughout history, and that is what is troubling, is that we like to think that the U.S. is, there's an imaginary narrative that we are a country of immigrants, that we are the land of opportunity. And yet we've we've had discriminatory immigration policies for a very long time, and now it's Uh, people from the South, but before it was Italians and Eastern Europeans, often Jews. Um, uh, Asians were kept from the country, and for a while, uh, female Asians were kept from this country. So um, it keeps on changing, but one thing that remains constant is that we don't want to let people in. Absolutely. You said it. You said exactly what I was trying to say and think is that this continues to happen. It's cyclical, it's historical, and it's a pattern. And unless we look at the what we're doing as something purposeful, it's not accidental. It is using people as scapegoats um, and creating suffering that is unnecessary. If we think about even further than, than these populations, um, we think about the Native American boarding schools that took children away from their communities and families. We can think about the history of enslavement and, and how Black children were sold and separated from their families again. And even 
uh, whole communities like Japanese communities during um, World War in the internment camps. And so this is a, a pattern. And I think that unless we take a good look at it, we are deemed to repeat it. Have the policies varied from one administration to another and uh, depended on who the governors of the board, board of states are? Yeah, I mean, policies are, are constantly in flux, especially when it comes to immigration. What we have seen, though, is that throughout the various administrations, it has become increasingly restrictive. I think that there is an idea that the Obama administration was favorable to immigrants. And yet, at the same time, it was an administration that deported more people than anybody else before him. Before, that before Trump. The Obama administration Before claimed Obama, that only I, the immigrants who were worse criminals would be deported. Well, if, if they I, de- their deportation record rivaled Trump's, that meant that they thought a lot of people were bad criminals. And that was the, the big mistake there is that through programs like 287G agreements, which are programs that created a relationship between local law enforcement and federal ICE agents, that basically created many immigration officials in every local city through police, ICE collaborations. And so anytime an immigrant had any interaction with the law, be it like you are a victim of a crime and you call the police or you're jaywalking or something like that, and you're asked for your ID and then they realize you don't have a driver's license or an ID because you're an immigrant, then they call ICE and essentially that qualifies as a crime. And so there was an insidious way that criminal law and immigration law became so intertwined through specifically um, during the Obama administration. But that was just the blueprint that then Trump took and exacerbated. Did they establish a precedent as a result? I mean, the what was established is the normalization of using criminal law to treat immigration law. Um, people, once they were caught, they weren't allowed to come back to the U.S. Some of them were not able to even see a judge. Um, they're in, in places like Arizona, uh, people are who are undocumented are not allowed to seek bail. And so... It established a precedence where we normalized all of these policies as as fine and natural, when in fact that that isn't the case. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York is Sylvia Rodriguez Vega. Her book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children, published by New York University Press. This is WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In June 2018, family separations at the U.S.-Mexico border made international headlines after uh, audio emerged from a federal detention facility that captured many children crying uh, when they were packed together, screaming for their parents. Uh, Why was that unique to that time? Why hadn't it been reported previously? Yeah, this was a time where detention policies shifted a bit. Um, For some time, people were detained together. Families were detained together. And during this time, the zero tolerance policy sought to separate children, young babies, toddlers of all ages, um, and were kept away from their parents. And so you have an increase of detention and separation. And then there are people who were working there in the detention centers were not always vetted. Um, So there were a lot of recordings, a lot of cases of mistreatment and sexual abuse, actually. Um, And one of these recordings was leaked and came out. Mm -hmm. And you do hear, you know, tremendous cries of babies who are asking, when am I going to see my mom? And what I think is so devastating from this policy that happened in 2018 is that now in in 2023, there are still about a thousand children that have not been reunited with their parents. Um, And yeah, that is just a terrible thing that continues to happen till today. 
Where and when did the idea of putting children in cages come from? You know, that is a, a great question because it wasn't completely new during the Trump administration. There were families that were kept in these um, ice boxes. They were called the Yaleras in Spanish, which were small um, prison cells that were at freezing temperatures. Um, there were also small cage-like um, in, in closed areas that um, teenagers were kept in during detention. So this had happened before, um, but it didn't happen at the rate and scale that it did during the Trump administration. And so it, it isn't also the first time that humans have been caged, literally. Um, so it, it does come from a long lineage. And in the book, I talk about how this is, this is part of a, a racist idea that some humans are not um, equal to others, that they're not human, in fact, that they're treated like animals. And that was one of the themes that came through children's drawings and accounts is that they were frustrated because they weren't treated like humans. And they, they had to deal with social constructs like the brown threat and the Latino threat. Right. You know, that was that's one of the ways that we think and the media is is responsible for a lot of this because in much of the news channels and stories, you have these narratives of like a wave of immigrants coming um, that is going to envelop the country and this this wave of danger. And so all of these narratives, the brown threat, the the takeover and all of these ideas have have ripple effects. And those effects are policies that are harsh like these and also other effects like the banning of ethnic studies and um, the banning of books and, and things like that, because there are narratives um, that communicate these these messages that aren't uh, aren't true. Well, although research suggests that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes in other groups in the same demographic, haven't many of these immigrant children internalized the message that they are a threat that have been made by some politicians? How does that play out in their lives? Yeah, that's a great question, Leonard. I'm thinking that, you know, that was one of the things that I, I found that children were really upset because as children were, were taught in school to respect each other, the golden rule, to treat others uh, kindly, to not be bullies. That's a huge message that children are receiving right now. And yet at the same time, we had the a candidate to the president to become president and who eventually became president calling Central American children, future criminals. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was talking about it even uh, at that on the famous ride down the escalator at exactly. the very beginning of his campaign. Exactly, he was still not in office and wasn't afraid to make these terrible claims, and so children really did. They internalized it in terms of like it impacted them, but they did not internalize it in, in believing it. They did not believe it. And they wanted to reject that idea. And they wanted so desperately to prove to people that they aren't criminals, that they actually want to help the community and donate things to people that are in need and, and all sorts of things. But they wanted to be proactive in changing these narratives about them and their families. Although many of the, the parents may think they're too young to be included in conversations about immigration, didn't you find that the children are nevertheless thinking about it? We, we see that reflected in their drawings that you've included in this book. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think adults often think that children should be protected from terrible ideas and, and circumstances that happen in society. And um, although I agree that um, children should be protected from terrible things, children of color, children of immigrants are very well aware of the dangers that exist that threaten their family cohesion or their own lives. And so what I found was that kids were so aware of all of the things that were happening, they would 
they would tell me what every candidate was talking about during the election. And they were especially um, up to date with every idea that Trump had. And so what I found is that although we think children don't know and, and aren't aware of things that are happening, they are. And so sometimes we we are giving doing a disservice to them by not engaging with them and not having these tough conversations with them. I was struck particularly by a drawing that you included in the book of by a seven-year-old, Eduardo, uh, which has a sheriff, his car, the sheriff, uh, with a gun and his dog and a, a boy on his knees with his hands up. Yeah, I I remember that drawing and I've been thinking about that one because what I found is that a lot of kids in Arizona, that, that drawing is from Arizona, they draw a picture of a, being on the road in a car and it's often nighttime. I think that picture has a moon on the corner. Well, it has a black moon, but yes, it has a moon. Yeah. And so they often draw the road, a car and getting pulled over at nighttime because that actually was happening very often in that community. And so anytime a parent or or a family gets pulled over and they're asked for a driver's license, that is basically an automatic way of getting detained and deported. And so for children, they drew that as as a nightmare kind of drawing. Other drawings included um, like a dark and stormy night with like thunder and many scenes of, of getting pulled over. And unfortunately, like this drawing that seven-year-old Eduardo drew, it has a sheriff pulling out a gun on someone. And I think that the person with their hands up has a T-shirt. And I don't know if you can read the T-shirt, but it says, um, I'm Mexican. And so for kids, they're aware that there there is a danger to drive at night and that being Mexican is a reason while, why that could happen. And, um, and somebody as young as seven. Keep going. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I just was going to say that it's unfortunately that a seven-year-old has the capacity to put all these pieces together already. And the drawing on the cover of your book has a a helicopter uh, shining a light on uh, people in a a home, in a what what, what you call it. Anyway, uh, obviously uh, checking them out. Uh, So these kids were pretty much reporting their experiences. Uh, to to Trump, the border wall was a way to engage his base. How how did the children you worked with conceptualize it? Yeah, you know, they in their mind, even though it was a proposal and a goal and something to be done in the future, when they heard Trump talking about this, it was as if it already happened. They were already coming to class, worried that they would never see family uh, south of the border ever again. They were already worried that um, the border wall would be so huge that it would get very close to L.A. They, they, In their minds, it was already factual and it was so close to home. Um, and they talked about their, their parents suffering because of it. I remember one young person said that they saw their mom crying because they the grandmother was sick and the mom couldn't go visit her because um, if she went, she would never be able to come back to the U.S. And so parents are having to make these tough choices of do I see my elderly parent and visit them or do I stay in the country because if I leave, then my child deserves to grow up here. And if I leave, I may not be able to come back. And so children were even talking about that in class. Um, and it was all because of what was happening on in, on the news about the wall and the border and Mexico paying for the wall and all of these comments and narratives. Don't you contend that family separation policies are built on the implicit belief that children's lives are disposable. What's the reasoning behind the separation of immigrant families? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated because we have ideas that children are innocent and that we are going to protect their innocent childhood. And I think that is a beautiful thing. Um, But because policies impact the family, 
most often it trickles down to impacting the child. Well, you, and, it's uh, traumatic to, to be separated from your parents, isn't it? Absolutely, because to a child, you depend for your livelihood on your parent. And especially the younger you are, the more you depend on them. And so being pulled away from your parent literally is uh, a feeling of death, a feeling of danger, a feeling of incredible insecurity that doesn't allow you to concentrate at school or feel safe or even be happy and play. And so those are the ways that children uh, and their their own um, childhood and innocence is devalued because we aren't creating policies that in fact protect them and make them feel safe. We're doing the opposite. Most of the literature on immigrant youth characterizes them as passive victims. Don't you challenge that? I think this work does challenge that because while it is true that children are, are suffering incredibly because of immigration policy and other things, I also contend in the book that because I use art and engage with children using creative methods like theater and drawing and, and journaling and poetry, those opportunities to process and create something with their hands or embody it with, with acting creates moments of reflection and of coping. And I think when this is, is an opportunity for them, it helps them. And it could bring about imaginative, creative, even funny solutions to things. And that was what I found in the work. And so I think that children being able to tell their own story gives them agency. Um, and that agency, I think, is very important because that allows us to understand firsthand how children think about these things or, and are impacted by them. And you also see them as active agents in their own stories. Obviously, that's not passive. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, they are telling their own stories, drawing their own perspectives and feelings. And often when researchers interview children or work with children, we rely on methods that are best suited for adults like interviews and such. And so for children, being questioned by an adult can be difficult because they may think that there's a right or wrong answer. Um, and especially for immigrant children, they're often the translators of their families. They're taken to doctor's appointments or even um, immigration and lawyer appointments and are meant to translate tough and legal language and, and medical language. And so when a researcher questions a child or does an interview, I think that can bring up some of those feelings. And um, in this work, I think that art is very powerful at, at deconstructing that and giving them the power to tell their own story. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Mama, oh mama, why is he holding me? Is this the land where freedom rings from sea to shining sea? Back home they I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega. Uh, if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give. And the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega, uh, talk about her book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children from New York University Press. <clears throat> she is Assistant Professor for Chicana and Chicano Studies at UC Santa Barbara. And that's obviously in New York. I mean, in California. Uh, <laughs> oops. Uh, let's, let's get to the whole business about art, okay? Because um, 
how how does art provide children with a way to manage their stress? Is this something we've known about for a while, or is this unique to this situation? No, I think it's it's not unique to the situation. I think children, all children, can benefit from art. Um, I believe that art is not a luxury. Um, and that it is a human right. And especially children who are going through a tough time, who are vulnerable, who've experienced stress or, or distress and trauma. I think that art is, is a, an amazing tool for them. It has the potential to give them a calm and a space to process. Um, and sometimes, you know, contemplate the things that are scaring them and imagine something different. And so this creates a physiological response that is calming, kind of like meditation for children. And so it, it is very useful. And I think all children should have access to it. Uh, you you uh, talk about children here ranging in age from five into their teens. Are different types of behavior age specific? Yeah, I think that when children are stressed, um, depending on what grade they're in or what age they are, that stress can manifest differently. Some uh, kids may become very clingy. Some may have nightmares. Um, there were there were reports of stress and anxiety in children. Um, and I think it just depends on, on what age they are and how it manifests. I think some can um, get in trouble at school, and that also can be a symptom of, of experiencing distress in the home or, or in other places. Um, and so I think all children are also very different and can some become resilient from this stress, um, while others may not favor so, so positively. Have you followed any of the children since you did your research? Yeah, unfortunately, um, it was part of my agreement with the IRB board to not collect any identifiable information. And for those who don't know what the IRB is, it's is a set of protocols that you have to follow uh, to comply with um, law and with university policies. And so because these children are vulnerable in terms of being children, being from um, immigrant families and possibly undocumented, it was for their own safety that I didn't keep their information. Um, but honestly, I think about them all the time and I'm wondering how they're doing constantly, especially when I see their portraits. Um, the kids in California are now high school students. And yeah, yeah I think about them every day. Uh, well, California is, I, I think, treats its immigrants differently than Texas does or Arizona. Does that matter? It matters so much, and I'm so glad that you bring that up because a, a lot of times we're wondering what can be done about this, and we feel so helpless because we're not many of us are not politicians and and are not don't have that much power. But um, while the federal government has failed to pass an immigration reform and, in fact, has done the opposite and continued to restrict access to legal status, um, states have some power to create a different circumstance for people who are immigrants. So mm. places like California have become sanctuary cities, while places like Arizona and Texas have gone in opposite direction. And that that matters so much. And it can totally transform a child's trajectory from having access to college um, and books and programs and art to not having it. And that is life altering, I think. Did you speak to any officials? Because um, the influence of Mexico on those states and New Mexico as well, um, is is something that they're often very proud of. Yeah, I didn't interview politicians. Um, I was more interested on what kids thought about politicians. And they were very, very uh, preoccupied with politicians. They were talking about Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie and... Obama all the time, um, and definitely Trump. Trump and Sheriff Joe Arpaio 
were the characters that were most prevalent in the drawings. When I quantified this, so I basically added up every single time Trump um, or a parent or a classmate or a family member were in a drawing, what I found was that Trump was drawn more often than any other character, than their parents, than their siblings and their friends, than themselves. And so while I didn't talk to politicians, I I talked to children. And in our, our theater, they also uh, pretended to be politicians and were able to communicate what they think politicians think and say. And so that, I think, was very interesting. Well, how did they depict Trump in their art. Didn't they often make him bald, behaving like a rabid dog? <laughs> yeah. Um, I can tell you read the book because those are some of the stories that are deep in the book. Because one of the things that I'm arguing is that because of the policies and the things that Trump was saying on the along the campaign, um, children felt dehumanized. And when they had the power to do a drawing about Trump or to act like Trump, they also adopted that same dehumanization. And at sometimes it was funny. For example, in one of the plays, they encounter Trump on the border who's checking on the wall and he gets an allergy attack because it's dusty. And when he sneezes so powerfully, his wig flies off. <laughs> and he gets embarrassed and he runs away. Uh, and then the family is able to to cross the border and reunite with the family on the other side. And so this to them was hilarious. But when I analyzed more of the performances and the drawings, what I found was that they did mirror that dehumanization that they experienced. And so how they were made to feel like criminals or animals, they also portrayed Trump and Arpaio in, in similar ways as um, non-human or as um, creating these humorous and not so humorous moments where they expressed that um, dehumanization back to them. Um, a number of children from Phoenix drew Joe Arpaio, the, he was Maricopa County Sheriff, shaking hands with a Mexican man. Uh, how did that translate in their minds? Yeah, you know, I think that brings me back to my very first point at the top of the interview that the sheriff shaking hands with a Mexican and a, somebody shaking hands is an opportunity to meet, an, an invitation to get to know someone or, or possibly befriend them. And so this encounter of respect between Sheriff Dorapayo and a Mexican, which in their drawings, they, they characterize the Mexican as a day laborer. And a day laborer is somebody who's undocumented and works in different small uh, jobs every single day and gets hired by the day to do things like yard work and construction. And so to them, a sheriff shaking hands with an with a vulnerable immigrant meant that there was going to be peace in their community that their families would not be in danger of of being deported or separated and i think this was very powerful because they're showing us the way to create peace the way the possibilities that should exist what are some of the other themes that were common among the artwork there was one image that really captured my attention. I I am so impacted by it because often if you give kids a piece of paper and coloring pencils or markers, they'll draw a house and, and stick figures that are smiling and like a very bright sun and flowers. And this drawing was similar to that, but it totally put it on its head because what it actually depicted was a, a typical house with three people inside that are frowning. And anytime there's a frown, it's I see it as something extremely intentional, that the child meant for that figure to come across as suffering. And then outside of the home, there was a cage that, in, that encaged the home. And there was a sun that was frowning, and there was a flower that was dying, and there was a tree with no leaves on it, and there was a gray cloud. And so all of these things put together 
transmitted a message of, of desperation, of depression, of sadness. And underneath they wrote, immigration is making everything fall apart. So to this child who lives in a place where there's immigration raids, where driving anywhere is a danger, they feel that they're caged and jailed inside of their home. Um, and to me, what I argued in the book is that we went from a metaphorical caging to a very literal caging uh, in just the span of two political administrations. One of the drawings uh, has uh, a man saying, I crossed the border, and and uh, his child son saying, who is that ma? And she says, is your dad? Mm. So these, the, the family separations were very powerful, I imagine. Uh, did you... Uh, yeah give them prompts at the beginning? I appreciate you asking that because I didn't. I, every single time I met with them, is it was a very open-ended invitation to talk about the things in society that mattered to them. So much of the class we, we spent talking about things like bullying, um, climate change. They were extremely concerned with global warming. They talked about um, park cleanups. They talked about animals. They talked about bombs going to North Korea. They talked about foreign relations. Um, and they talked a lot about video games, but and sports, of course. But most often, because these were children of immigrants, the topic of immigration was centralized. And so I documented everything that had to do with immigration, but they did spend time talking about other worries that they thought about. Um, but this book accounts for, for the portions that in stories and drawings that relate to immigration policy in general. Do they express their feelings differently after they have done a drawing or a painting? You know, I actually conducted pre and post surveys to try to understand if this class or the opportunity to draw made a difference. And so I, I did very simple surveys where I used emojis and then I said, how do I feel about my community? And there was like a smiling emoji, a neutral one, a, a sad one. And they chose how they felt about different things. And it was general. I, I asked about family. I asked about how they felt about love, about, and then in there, I included immigration. And so I found that before the class, they were kind of ambiguous about all of those things in general. I think they were just smiling and, and thinking favorably about like recess and, and playing. But after the class, I found that they were more vocal about all topics. Um, so I don't know how sophisticated my survey was, but I think that what it showed was that having children express themselves through art gave them confidence to express themselves about many topics. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega. Her book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children, published by New York University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, let's talk about the, the things that these kids go through. Chronic stress, for example. It's never good, but its impact on children is different than it's on adults. What are its ramifications on children? Yeah, so chronic stress. Some people, you know, there's a lot of literature now that says that some stress is actually positive for people and that stress can be a motivator to perform better and it shows you what you care about and, and things like that. And I think that that's very valuable to, to know. But when you compound stress that is on a daily basis, that has to do with violence in the community or poverty or different, you know, domestic violence or just things that are worrying you like gun violence in society. Um, all of these things and this stress adds up over time. And while stress can be, you know, something you feel when you're exercising and then you have time to rest. So your heart rate lowers. That is part of a, of, of a healthy system. But when your heart rate doesn't have time to lower, 
at the end of the day and you can't decompress and you continue to worry about maybe your family being separated or maybe not ever seeing your your mom again that stress creates creates physiological effects that basically create disease um adverse childhood experiences the aces test it's called accounts for distress uh and childhood trauma and how that impacts adults and they find that people who score higher on their ace test meaning that you experience trauma as a child have the potential to develop diseases in adulthood like diabetes and hypertension and others and so this stress is is terrible for everyone and it's especially terrible for children and the younger that they experience it the more detrimental it is over time well, resilience is often brought up in discussions about immigrant children, and you, you're arguing that it's not the antidote to the stress and trauma that uh, they're undergoing? Precisely. I think that saying that, oh, children will be okay, or, the, the you know, they'll be fine, or I was stressed out when I was a kid and went through things and I turned out okay, all of those things uh, just created a service, and they don't help. Um, because children do carry that. And what I find is that instead of placing the responsibility for things to be okay on children, we as adults need to take accountability for the way that our society creates these conditions. And so this is a legal issue. It's a systemic issue. And the solutions need to be legal solutions, and they need to be systemic solutions as well. We can't count our children's resilience to undo decades worth of um, legal violence. There are reports on the news all the time about what's going on uh, at the border, and I find them a bit confusing because they seem to be changing all the time. What is currently happening at the border in terms of our handling of, of children, especially the ones who arrive on their own? Yeah, you know, it is confusing. I think that if it's confusing for us, it's definitely confusing for children. And what we've found, you know, we we changed political administrations and there was a lot of hopes that Biden would help undo the damage that had been done to the asylum seeking process by the Trump administration, who effectively ended asylum and, and created um, policies and avenues where no one was getting asylum and the need was getting greater and greater. Is and unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the Biden administration has continued to adopt policy um, that was under the Trump administration. And most recently this week, um, Biden upheld a policy, the transit ban, which means that if you have to pass one country on your way to seek asylum to the U.S., then you can't come and seek asylum to the U.S., that you have to do it at that country and that you have to do it through an app. And so all of these ways, uh, these were things that the Biden administration and, and people in general critiqued Trump about uh, asylum. And now Biden is doing the same thing. And so it is very confusing and frustrating. And uh, we're seeing uh, children uh, leaving other countries as well, especially Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if their reactions are the same as the ones that we see on our border. But how might collaborating with other countries on this issue help us understand the impact of immigration policies on children and their families? Yeah, I'm so glad that you bring up Ukraine because that is one of the frustrating things. I'm so I mean, generally, people are very glad that the U.S. has an attitude of um, helping Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees. Come Poland into has been wel welcoming Exactly. Very welcoming. But on the other hand, when we think about just what was happening with Haitian migrants who were literally being beat at the border on, on by Border Patrol on horseback, these perceptions and these treatment of, of different immigrant and refugee groups really points to the ways uh, that these policies are racist and that racism continues to be upheld 
through policy and um, the the reception towards Ukraine versus other immigrants is is one example of that. Are you calling for a national level study to explore the effects of immigration, not only on traditional mental health, but also on policy relevant outcomes such as academic achievement and educational process? Is there enough public concern for a study like that to take place? And you have a minute to give me an answer. I do think that that study needs to happen, but I, what I think is more urgent is to change these policies. We already know that they're detrimental, and I think it's time we do something about it. Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega is assistant professor for Chicana and Chicano Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Her book, the one we've been discussing, is Drawing Deportation, Art, and Resistance Among Immigrant Children, published by New York University Press. And I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much, Leonard. I really enjoy speaking with you. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. My great thanks to Todd McGovern for all of his help in preparing this segment. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly seven, or over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBI in a moment of great need. We are really in economic difficulties right now, <laughs> and I'm not sure that we're going to come out of it in a good way. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so, in fact, it's got me all choked up. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling us now at 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. We need your help to help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. It's by Sylvia Rodriguez Vega. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, at 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars you're comfortable with a month. And we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. It allows us to prepare for the future. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listen donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio, but also puts us in these precarious situations. So again, a reminder, please call now. 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org and um, help keep this, this station, the only one that New York Dollars 100% listener sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We hope you can join us again tomorrow. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.